Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, and that you would speak, and that your voice would be loud and clear and very much defining for us, for our identity, for our worth, for our values. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray, even as we look at your word, and mold and shape us to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So I, I'm so proud of all of you for braving the atmospheric river that was threatening to come out to church. And uh, yeah, I always laugh at the news. You know, it's always like, you know, some, some dramatic, you know, rain watch 2024, you know. And, uh, but I, I'm glad you all are here. So I, I wanted to begin this morning by asking you a question. So if I asked you to summarize the core message of Jesus in a crisp, concise, one-line statement, what would you say? You know, if you were going to summarize the very message of Jesus in one clear, concise, one-line statement, what might you say? Now, some of you, perhaps you would say, look, um, God is love. That's what Jesus was about. Or uh, this week, I was listening to an interview with a filmmaker, Rob Reiner, and he was talking about an encounter that he had kind of with, with, with religion, spirituality, and he began a search. And, um, and he said, I, I came across the teachings of Jesus, and I love them, he says, because if you could just boil down the teachings of Jesus in one phrase, it, it would be love one another. That's what Jesus was all about. You know, if, if you were to ask me uh, growing up uh, to, to, to share with you, you know, what Jesus was about in a clear, concise statement, I might say something like this, Jesus came uh, so that we might be forgiven of our sins and know that when we die, we can go to heaven. And I wonder what you would say. How would you summarize the teaching, the very message of Jesus, what Jesus was about in one clear, concise one-liner? Well, as we open up the Gospel of Mark today, Mark gives us, in a distilled form, Jesus's core message in one clear, concise, one-line statement. And listen to what it says. It says this, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, so uh, last week we looked at the the, the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist, he came on the scene preparing the way, and he came pointing to one who was to come. And now Jesus has come. And John has been put in prison, and now Jesus emerges on the scene, and he comes announcing the good news of God. And what Mark is going to do is he's going to summarize the core essence of Jesus's message. He is going to give us a one-line summary of Jesus's message that he came preaching, and it's this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. If you could summarize Jesus's message in one phrase, it would be this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God more than just about any other topic. You know, in the four gospels, the four biographers of Jesus, we read about, uh, we read the word salvation six times, hell 12 times, uh, repent 23 times, Forgiveness, 38 times. Love, 66 times. But we read about Jesus talking about the kingdom of God 120 times. 
It is the core theme of the message of Jesus. It is the thread that pulls everything that Jesus was about together. But what does it mean? What is the kingdom of God about anyway? I mean, think, when you hear the, the, the word kingdom or you think about a king, what kind of images come to your mind? Uh, perhaps you think about the United Kingdom, you know, Queen Elizabeth, you know, and whatnot, or uh, maybe you think about the magic kingdom. And I, I saw this image, I was like, I have never seen Disneyland look like that in my life, and neither have you. Could you imagine how wonderful it would be to have streets so empty? And, um, or maybe you think about the Wakandan kingdom, or uh, you think about Mufasa, the Lion King, you know? And, and of course, for many of us, you know, kings and kingdoms, it is the stuff of fairy tales, it is folklore, it is legend, or, you know, we're thinking about ceremonial or symbolic kings and queens like Queen Elizabeth. Um, you know, Webster's Dictionary defines kingdom like this. It says a politically organized community or major territorial unit with a monarchical, it's a hard word to say in front of all of you all, a monarchical form of government headed by a king or queen. In other, it's a form of government that is headed by a king or queen. But, you know, when you think about uh, what Jesus was about, do you think about Jesus in terms of establishing a government on earth? I mean, it just doesn't seem to fit. It almost seems to be like a category mistake. I mean, what are we even talking about when we speak about Jesus as being a king over a kingdom? What, what, what does that mean anyway? Is it just kind of some rhetoric that we use in church because maybe it's moving or it sounds good? Uh, is, it, is it some you know, fiction that we create that draws us all together, but then we go out into the real world and we live our real lives with the real people who have real power to make a difference in this world? I mean, what do we mean anyway when we talk about Jesus being a king and about Jesus inaugurating a kingdom? What does the kingdom of God mean anyway? Well, first, I think we could say, it means that the long-awaited messianic king has come. We talked about this last week. You know, Christ, we said, is not a name, it is a claim. You know, it is not Jesus, first name, last name, Christ. No, Christ is his title. It, it, is, it is who, it is his vocation, it is what he has come to be and do. He has come to be the long-awaited messianic king. And so the claim is, is that Jesus is the long-awaited messianic king. And listen, the core announcement, when you read through the book of Acts and you read the, the preaching of the early church, uh, they're constantly announcing to us all that Jesus is king and Lord that Jesus is now seated in the highest seat of cosmic authority. They make claims like this, God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messianic King. The great preacher and writer Fleming Rutledge puts it like this. She says, Lord and King essentially mean the same thing. They both mean ruler. When we refer to Jesus Christ as Lord and King, typo, we're expressing faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who was and is and will be, get this, the ruler of the universe. So what does it mean when we talk about the kingdom of God? What are we claiming? We're saying first that the long-awaited messianic king has indeed come. But that raises a question. 
What has the long-awaited messianic king come to do in this world? What has Jesus come to do anyway? Now, I think, again, the average church-going person, if you were to ask them, what has Jesus come to do? I mean, what would you say? Again, if you were to ask me as a 16, 17-year-old, brand-new Christian, what has Jesus come to do? I would say easy. That's basic. Jesus has come to die on a cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins and know that when we die, we can go to heaven. I might say Jesus has come into the world uh, almost like, you know, you remember um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? What did you need to get into the Chocolate Factory? You needed a golden ticket. And so many of us conceive of uh, golden ticket theology. Jesus came into the world to give out golden tickets to the chosen few so that when we die, we can know that we can get into the Chocolate Factory or heaven when we die. Now, don't get me wrong. Of course, Jesus came to bring forgiveness. And uh, for for those who who belong to Christ, your last breath on earth will be your first breath in the presence of the true and living God. But listen, if you ask the gospel writers, what has Jesus come to do? They would not have answered that way, or at least they certainly don't. The four biographers of Jesus, when you study those texts, when you're reading about them, you, you don't get, that. that's not the main answer What they might say, if you ask, what did Jesus the king, the long-awaited messianic king, come to do? They would say something like this. Jesus came to inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. But again, what does that mean? What does it mean that God has come to, or that Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth? I mean, what kind of kingdom is this anyway? I I mean, let's be honest. The last 2,000 years, ever since Christ came, it seems like what we have seen is not a uh, dramatic growth of a kingdom presided over by Jesus. We've seen earthly kingdom after violent earthly kingdom and abusive leaders come and go and come and go. What did Jesus come to start on earth anyway? How are we supposed to understand this teaching about the kingdom of God? Well, I want to explore that question by making three statements about the kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate. And I want to suggest, number one, that the kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate is first a like and a not like kingdom. Now, give me a minute. Let me explain this one a little bit. So, you know, my my wife, um, last summer, she went to New Zealand with my daughter, Lucy, And there's been numerous occasions where we're driving in some really beautiful place, Big Sur, along the coast. And I'm like, is this what New Zealand was like? And she'll she'll say, well, not really. It's not as beautiful. I'm like, this is so beautiful. It was, and I want to know, what was it like? And she stretches to share with me what it was like. And, and there's always some, some crossover between what, 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 what it was like and what it was not like. Or if you ask me, what is surfing like? Is it like skateboarding or snowboarding? Well, yeah, it's, it's like it, but it's also not like it. And the kingdom of God is like, and it's also not like the kingdoms of man in this. So, uh, of course, you know, we live in a constitutional democratic republic, or maybe more precisely, a federal constitutional democratic republic. Come on, poli-sci 101. 
And uh, you know, you know, in, in our in our form of government, we have a uh, executive branch and a judicial branch and a legislative branch. And we believe in the balance of power within America, right? And there's different powers that spread. Well, uh, the ancient world, when they thought of kings and kingdoms, they didn't think quite like this, because in the ancient world, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch was all wrapped up together in one core office, the office of king. The king held, as it were, all authority in executive matters, in judicial matters, and in legislative matters. And the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated is like this in this way. Jesus is the great legislator. Jesus has come into the world to bring a new law to govern our lives. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you should love one another as I have loved you. It's a, it's a new quality of love. It's the kind of love you've seen in me. I want you to go out and love one another. And all people will know that you're my disciples by this, that you love one another. You know, love would be the motive of obedience to God. Love would be the mark of genuine commitment to God. How you love others means everything in the kingdom of Jesus. You know, um, the Apostle Paul would later say that, that everything else that he ought to do as a, as a follower of Jesus is summed up in this one law that you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus came to give us his great law, the law of love, that if we were to do that, if we were to love God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength, and we were to love not just our neighbor, but even a love that stretched all the way to our enemies, that would transform our lives, it would transform our world. Jesus is the great king who's come to legislate, as it were, a law that governs over every law. Now, of course, that's not to say that, you know, as a citizen of our country, you shouldn't care about legislation in our world or in our country. You know, we are a part of a constitutional democratic republic after all, right? So people, you have a voice, but the primal concern as you think about immigration legislation or uh, legislation about the unborn or legislation about the, the, the socially disadvantaged or the marginalized, we have to put it through the grid first and foremost of love because this is what our great king has come into the world to teach us. Of course, Jesus is not just the great legislator. Jesus came into this world to be the chief executive. You know, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus would look at his disciples, he'd look at us all, and he would make this bold, audacious claim. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And when you see Jesus operating on, in the world, do you know what you see? You see real power on earth to make a difference in real human lives. You know, as the chapter in Mark 1 unfolds, you see Jesus go out and they are impressed because he teaches with power and authority. And you see Jesus speak and the darkness trembles because the word and the name of Jesus has power and authority. In the power and authority, Jesus speaks and the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. Jesus has real power and authority on earth. Some of you have known that power and authority in your life. 
And I wonder how many of you could testify that you were lost, but by that power you were found. You were enslaved and addicted, but by that power you have been set free. You were in the grip of some darkness, but the, the name of Jesus spoke and you were set free. Jesus is the executive power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been unleashed in this world through Jesus. And Jesus is, of course, the head of the judicial branch. You know, one day, the day is coming when Jesus himself will sit as the judge of the final judgment. And all of us will stand and give an account of our lives to Jesus, who is both king as well as judge. Jesus, as king and his kingdom, is like what we think of as earthly kingdoms in this. Jesus is the ruler over the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. And those who enter into this kingdom, come to reckon with that reality. That's why the first command after he comes announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand is this. He says, repent and believe this good news. In other words, turn and orient your life around the legislative wisdom of King Jesus. Uh, orient your life and submit yourself to the powerful authority of the great executive King Jesus and then live all of life before the face of the great King, King Jesus. His, his, his kingdom is, is, is like, it's, it's analogous to the kingdoms of the world in that, but it is unlike the kingdoms of the world in this. The kingdoms of this world have borders and they have boundaries the kingdom of God has no border. This is a kingdom for every tribe and nation and tongue and people. This is a multi-ethnic, it is a multi-racial, it's a multi-generational, it's a multi-everything kingdom. The gates have been opened wide, all are invited into this kingdom. And listen, friends, our chief loyalty, our primal loyalty is not to this nation with its borders. Our primal loyalty is to the kingdom of God that knows no borders. The kingdom of Jesus is also not like the kingdoms of the world in this. The kingdom of Jesus does not claim new territory and it does not exert its rule over its current territory through threat and coercion and violence. No, this is a kingdom of freedom where people are invited to respond in love to the king of love and render their life and their will in obedience to him. This is not a kingdom like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus would later say, you know how the kingdoms of the world are. You know, they, they, the way they exercise authority, it shall not be so among you. In this kingdom, we don't exert vengeance on our political enemies. In this kingdom, we are not all about holding the power on top for the sake of those on top. No, in this kingdom, if you want to be great, you become the servant of all. You love not just your friends, but even your enemies. This is a very, very different kind of kingdom. So this kingdom is a like and not like kingdom. And, Jesus, and Mark wants us to see, and Jesus wants us to see that this is incredibly good news. Notice two times, he came announcing the good news. And then, uh, and then he said, believe this good news. Listen, the best news you will ever hear is that Jesus is king. 
And the best news you will ever experience in your life is when you orient yourself around Jesus as king. It is a not, it is a like and not like kingdom. But secondly, I want you to see it is also a present but future kingdom. <laughs> or you could say it's an already not yet kingdom. It's, it's paradoxical in that sense. You're like, is it present or is it future? And I say, yes. Is it already? Did he already inaugurate it? Is it already growing? Or is it something we're waiting to break in in the future? And I say, yes. It is both present as well as a future kingdom. You know, the prophet that's, that, that probably more than any other ancient Old Testament prophet that spoke about the kingdom of God was that prophet Daniel. And uh, there's this great, there's this great um, uh, image in, in the book of Daniel. Daniel has this dream. And in his dream, he sees these four beasts arising out of the dark and chaotic ocean. And the first beast that arises is, is a lion, and it has eagle's wings. And then the second is like a bear, and it's raised up on one side, and it has three ribs in its mouth. And then the third is like a leopard, but now it's got four wings and four heads, so it's kind of a freaky, terrifying leopard. And then um, the last one, though, is the freakiest of them all. It's a beast, and he doesn't even have an animal to compare it to. It's just this crazy beast a crazy, scary beast with large iron teeth and 10 horns. And one of the horns is this blasphemous, violent horn that starts persecuting God's people. And then after seeing these terrifying beasts arise up out of the, 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 the dark chaotic seas, which each represents one of the dark, violent, chaotic kingdoms of man that were persecuting the children of Israel, all of a sudden the camera pans. And we, we, we get a vision into the throne room of heaven and there is seated the Ancient of Days. And what does he do? Well, a judgment is made. And authority and dominion and rule is stripped away from these beastly earthly kingdoms and their rulers. The Hitlers, the Pol Pots, the... the, the, the you know, linens of the world, it has been stripped. You, sorry, you have not done well with earthly power. We're gonna take it away from you. And then it says this, that authority and that rule is given to one like the son of man. And then it says this, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You know, this was one of the favorite passages uh, of the New Testament authors to describe what Jesus had done. When Matthew says, all authority in heaven and on earth are given to me about Jesus, or when Jesus says that in the Gospel of Matthew, it's drawn upon this language. Judgment has been made. The one who the, the earthly violent kingdoms put to death God has overturned their verdict because God has raised Jesus from the dead. And he has been ascended to the right hand of, of God and he has seated down and he has been given all rule and all authority. Now, the implication though that you get from this passage is a picture like this. Uh, you have earthly kingdoms and they're kind of running along their course and then Jesus comes and the earthly kingdoms are stripped and it just, we enter right into the kingdom of God. But 
as you read about the, as you read in the Gospels, you discover that the kingdom of God doesn't actually come like this. It doesn't come all in one wham, bam, you know, shot. Instead, it comes something like this. The kingdom of God breaks into the world, into the midst of the earthly kingdoms, and it grows alongside of those kingdoms. And so already the kingdom of God is growing, it's been birthed, it's been inaugurated, and we see the executive, the legislative, uh, the judicial authority of Jesus at work on earth to make a real difference in real lives and in real systems and, and make a huge difference in the world. But we still wait for that day when the curtain is pulled back and Jesus comes again and is revealed as the world's true king. But in this middle, between the present and the future, between the already, not yet, what actually is the kingdom of God like? Jesus says this, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, it is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make its nests in its branches or in its shades. You know, there are some claims in the Bible that feel so out of touch with the realities on the ground that it takes a whole lot of faith to really believe it. But this is not one of those claims. This claim that the kingdom of God begins as small, like the smallest of seeds, the black mustard seed, is, is you can barely see it. And you plant that thing into the ground and it becomes the largest of the garden plants. And it grows. It starts insignificant and small and then it grows and it becomes something great. Friends, I, I wanna argue that this, this, this truth in this parable is one of the most demonstrably true statements in the gospel about the kingdom of God. This is exactly what has happened over the last 2,000 years. The smallest of all the seeds on the earth, hailing from the small town of Nazareth, a blue-collar working uh, class town with the equivalent of a couple trailer parks and subsidized apartments, an itinerant rabbi and miracle worker traveling around the little villages along the Sea of Galilee, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, ultimately growing in popularity, ultimately losing popularity, ultimately dying naked, stripped, beaten, and alone, utterly forsaken. It began as the smallest of all the seeds. And yet early on Sunday morning, when Jesus was raised from the dead and he walked out of that tomb, everything began to change. First, there was 120 gathered in that upper room. And then after that, the spirit, and then there was 3,000. And then it began to grow and grow and spread and spread. And, 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 and now it is the largest, most influential religion in the history of the world. Christianity has become the largest, most significant movement in the history of the world. I mean, far and away, you know, 
Christianity has, this Jesus movement, his kingdom movement, has inspired more hospitals and orphanages and philanthropy and love and devotion and no end of martyrs and poets and saints and songwriters and academics and abolitionists and spoken word artists and preachers and civil rights leaders and foster care and adoptive parents and Bible translators and and universities. And, And there is so much that has been birthed into the world because of this movement that began like a small mustard seed and now is growing to become the largest plant in the garden. The kingdom of Jesus is like a mustard seed. It is growing into the largest of all the plants and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Third observation about the kingdom. It is a like and not like kingdom. It is a present yet future kingdom. Are we wrapping our minds around the kingdom, friends? We getting there, okay. Thirdly, it is a suffering glory kingdom. Now watch this. This is so interesting. I, I, I haven't really noticed this before until this week, but look at this. Jesus comes on, he says, the, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Do you see that phrase, at hand? Uh, what, what exactly does that mean? It, it's kind of interesting. Um, it means it's come close, it's near, it's right at the door. And what's interesting is, although Jesus begins right at the shores of the Sea of Galilee, saying the kingdom of God is right here at hand, as the story unfolds, he starts saying things like to to his disciples, I'm telling you, there are some of you who are standing here right now who will still be alive to see my kingdom come in its glory. You know, Jesus stands before the religious leaders and they're like, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And he says, I am. And you will see the son of man, Daniel 7 language, seated at the right hand of the father. In other words, receiving all authority and power, you will see the kingdom of God break in. It begins by saying it's at hand and then it's gonna break in. But what's interesting is this, this statement The background of Jesus' statement here is almost certainly Isaiah chapter 52. You're like, well, some of you had that one memorized, right? But listen to to this. The language about gospel, good news, and the reign of God, the kingdom of God, it, it comes right out of this passage in Isaiah 52 where it says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. The first one with beautiful feet was Jesus, announcing the kingdom of God, the reign of God is at hand. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. God is king, and he is coming to come, become king in the world in a fresh new way again, to defeat the darkness and to establish his reign. But then the text goes on and it says this, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Now listen, this is kind of fun, I, I think at least. But the, the imagery of this text is of... Uh, of a, like a, you think about a castle with a a wall surrounding it, 
And everybody is kind of holed in and the castle walls are surrounded and all the people are, are holed up there and they're all freaked out and terrified because the enemy is closing in on them. And their king has gone away with the, with the soldiers to fight other battles, but the king is coming back. And when the king comes back, he will defeat all the enemies surrounding the walls. And, and so they, they kept somebody on the watch, on the walls, watchmen, and they would keep their eyes out for the return of the king. And um, Isaiah is using this imagery to say, a voice is coming of one who's keeping watch out, who's gonna declare that the king, the, the true king, the true sovereign of all creation, God himself is returning once again. And the text says to Zion, to, to Jerusalem, God will return when the enemies are surrounded. He will defeat the enemies and he will establish his kingdom and God will reign on this earth again. And listen, what is the story the gospel writers are telling? They are telling the story of how God in Jesus, the messianic king, Jesus who is God among us, has come like the king coming back. And with the enemies surrounding, starting to do battle against the forces of darkness, casting out demons, healing disease, ultimately going into Jerusalem, the very city walls. But strangely, he exerts his great victory over the most heinous sins of the human race, sin and death and darkness, not with military power, but through a glad act of self-giving love on your behalf. He lays down his life fully, unreservedly, sacrificially, bearing in his own body your sins, taking upon on the cross the very powers of darkness themselves, putting them to an open display, a spectacle, and triumphing over them, the book of Colossians says. And it is interestingly in that moment that Mark chooses to highlight again and again and again and again in Mark chapter 15, right as Christ is on the cross, this is the king of the Jews. This is your king. This is God coming in to triumph over our enemies and ultimately to inaugurate his long-awaited kingdom here in the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. The kingdom of God has broken in and it has come with power. That's good news, isn't it? Listen, This is where the kingdom of God was inaugurated. This is where God was becoming king in a fresh and real way on earth in this world. This is where God was inaugurating his new kingdom where King Jesus would preside, issuing his legislation, exercising his sovereign authority and, um, and, and standing as the judge of the final judgment, yet in radically counterintuitive and very different sorts of ways. This is how the kingdom of God was launched in the earth. And this is what Jesus Christ has come into the world to do. Listen, the cross and resurrection is not only the point where the kingdom of God was inaugurated and it was birthed afresh in the world. The cross and resurrection of Jesus 
is where your life can begin. You can begin a new life with God, a new life in the world, by turning and orienting your life and yourself around this Jesus and saying, Jesus, I don't, I don't get all this stuff. Listen, some of you are new. You're kind of brand new to this whole thing. You're like, I don't quite understand it. Listen, none of us really fully understands this stuff, amen? I mean, I've been in a process of learning and growth for decades. But you don't need full understanding to have full commitments. You know, um, marriage is like that, isn't it? You don't need full understanding and knowledge for full commitment. No, you have no idea what's going to come in the decades ahead or who that person is going to turn into or what, you know, whatever, or, or what kind of hardship you're going to face together. You don't need full knowledge for full commitment. And listen, we are invited to fully orient our lives around Jesus. And isn't it interesting that just following upon the seal, right after Jesus says, repent and believe, what happens in the next story? There, there's a couple sets of brothers who don't fully understand. They're fully not getting this thing because they have a whole process they're gonna go through. And yet, they hear this invitation, come, entrust yourself to me and follow. And you can begin your life simply by responding to that invitation, come. Entrust your life to Jesus. You can trust Jesus. And listen, it's not just people who are new to the faith that need to trust Jesus with his kingdom and what it's about, right? All of us need to trust in this radical, counterintuitive, countercultural way of the kingdom. And in the months ahead, as we explore the story of Jesus, he's gonna keep pressing this truth upon us.